You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning, everybody. My name is Albany Adams, and me and my husband, Chad, attend the McLean Community Group. Today, we're going to be reading in Galatians. Um, I'm going to read the verse 6, verses 1 through 10. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then the reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whoever wants, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Thanks, Albs. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, My name is Tanner House. I'm the lead pastor here at Redeemer Church Odessa. Something's backwards. Hang on. Uh, Sorry. It it didn't feel right. Um, Yeah, if you're a guest, thank you so much for being here. There's a Connect card under your chair. You can take a minute, fill that out, get it back to us. Let us know how we can serve you, how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. Um, And on the back side of that Connect card is a place for prayer requests. So if you have those, we'd be honored to pray for you and with you. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Uh, Chad will get you one. And if you're on your phone or your tablet or something like that, we use the ESV. So I love to read. Um, I read a lot, or I try to read a lot, I should say. Full disclaimer, I don't love to read fiction. I'm trying really hard to be a well-rounded reader, so I force myself to read one classic work a year. Uh, And I struggle every year. Like, it's usually the last thing I read. Like, on the way out, goodbye year. Here's a... And I always default to, like, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens because it seems seasonal and topical. Anyways, I don't love fiction. I also don't love fantasy or sci-fi movies or anything like that. Uh, I've only seen the OG Star Wars uh, Episode 1, which is now Episode 4 or something. Like, I don't, I've only seen it once. That's the only one I've seen. I'm not into it. I don't get it. I know. Shocking. I don't, I don't get it. Also, please don't throw things at me. Um, but I don't love the Lord of the Rings, the books or the movies. Um, never read the books. Saw the movies. Didn't love them. I was in junior high when the first one came out. And it was about 19 hours long, and I was in the theater, and I was bored, and I just didn't understand it. Um, I've grown up and possibly matured since then, so I might really like them now. But again, those movies are so forever long that I can't commit to watching them and spend three days watching the trilogy. Um, But there is this one scene that is burned into my memory 
um, from the last one, the, the Return of the King. And it's, it's just really beautiful. So if you haven't seen it, maybe you should, whatever. Um, but Frodo and his companions have faced a lot of adversity in their quest to save Middle-earth from um, impending destruction that is caused by the One Ring. Frodo gets to the bottom of the smoldering mountain that I'm sure has a name, but I don't remember. But thank you, Morador. Yes, they're at the bottom of the smoldering mountain, and he's weary from his journey, and he's collapsed into the arms of his friend Sam, his gardener. And Sam looks down at Frodo, and knowing that Frodo is the only one who has to destroy the evil ring by dropping it into the fire, Sam looks at Frodo and he says, Come, Mr. Frodo. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. It's beautiful. Up the mountain they go. So my adult wife... I have come to see the benefit and come to realize my need for this type of relationship. In a real literal sense, I have never carried anyone up a mountain to save the world. And I have never had to be carried up a mountain, ever. But in another non-literal sense, I have been carried by faithful friends I've been carried by faithful friends who have pointed me back to the truth of the gospel when I have either pridefully forgotten it or honestly didn't care to hear it. Listen, a lot of you, a lot of you live life alone. Maybe not like physically alone, but spiritually alone. A lot of you live life alone. A lot of you, even those of you that are consistently showing up to your community group week after week after week after week, don't live open and honest lives with each other. The church is a gift to you, especially in times of struggle. Christ has purchased your salvation through himself And by your adoption, you have been then called into a family. And a lot of you live isolated lives from your family. You may have reasons, and most of them are not good reasons. Most of these reasons are rooted in in self-protected measures. Most are rooted in pride. Some of you just don't know any differently because that's what was modeled for you by your parents. If you grew up like me, which I know a lot of you did, your families didn't really talk about feelings and struggles. And when mine did, it was because I was in trouble. It was usually in a response to some undesired behavior that was going on. Not really as a means to engage my heart. But Scripture is calling us to a radical shift and a radical way of living. It is different from the way the world deals with these issues. Scripture is calling us to a radical way of living. It's different from the way that the world deals with issues. It's supposed to be the way that the church deals with struggles, and yet most churches just don't.
A lot of you would rather talk to complete strangers, i.e. counselors, and not your faithful Christian friends about areas you're struggling. Like a lot of you would rather hide out in counseling than to be known in community. And listen, I'm not opposed to counseling. I just finished a two-year stint with it and will probably go back at some point. But counseling is meant to be a supplement to community. But a lot of you just want to pretend like you're okay when you're not. And today's passage shows us a better way. This is going to be a push for you to invest deeply in community because it is worth it. This is going to be a reminder that you are fully known and fully loved by God your Father, and there is freedom then to be fully known and fully loved by your faith family. And this passage is going to point out to us some of the one another's of Scripture and how to practice them. There are five things that this text is going to teach us today. These five things are from um, one of my pastoral heroes, Tony Morita, in his commentary. And I thought they were good and helpful, so I wanted to share them with you. So I'm going partly back to my Baptist roots here. I tried to make these five points all start with the same letter, but I couldn't make it work. So I'm only going part of the way back. So I do believe there is something for every single one of us here. So I just ask you to lean in and consider what the Lord is trying to teach us all today. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, I pray that you would impress on the hearts of men and women in this room areas of your great love for them, the the totality of your great love for them, and then areas of struggle and areas of unbelief and areas of pride. And Lord, I just pray that you would just root that out. Lord, grow us in your likeness. Grow us in humility. Grow us in dependency. Lord, help us to see that our weaknesses endear us to you, Lord, and that you're pleased with us in spite of them, Lord, and that you're growing in us in, in spite of these areas. Lord, I just pray for peace and comfort. Church, if you're willing, and ask that you would pray for yourself, that the Lord would bring conviction where conviction is needed and encouragement where encouragement is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So just a little review from the past couple weeks, mostly last week. Paul, last week, gives us two opposing lives. We have a life that is lived to the Spirit of God as evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists in chapter 5. And then we see a life that is evidenced by works of the flesh. A life lived for self, a life lived to sin, and this life leads to destruction. Paul says that those who live a life habitually to the flesh do not inherit the kingdom of God. 
But those who live by the Spirit of God, those who live to the Spirit of God, they look like Jesus. And so take comfort here, Christian. It isn't an overnight shift. It isn't an overnight transition. You don't receive salvation in Christ and then immediately stop struggling with sin. But if you have received salvation, the cross of Christ speaks a better word over you. If you have received salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus, then sin is no longer your master. You have God's forgiveness. You have God's forgiveness. So now when you sin as a Christian, God doesn't see a person that deserves his wrath as a just punishment against sin, but rather, when we sin as believers in Jesus, his blood speaks our pardon before the Lord. Christ's sacrifice has secured our justification before God. Justification means that we're made right as if we have never sinned. But we know that even as believers, we do sin. So our justification isn't meant to lead us to freedom to sin, but rather freedom from sin. So in our passage today, Paul gives us some practical steps on how to walk out a life lived in the Spirit. And so our contention at Redeemer Church is based on the Scriptures is that we are to walk out a life in the Spirit with other Christians. Paul's letters are mostly written to churches. The ones addressed to individuals, such as Titus and Timothy, are instructions on how to lead the church. And then we have the book of Philemon that has some application for the broader faith community on how we work out forgiveness and conflict resolution with one another. The contention is that there is no isolated Christianity. There is no isolated Christianity in the Bible. That idea has been invented by our Western individual culture. We are called to do this together. He starts by calling his readers brothers or brothers and sisters. Again, this is addressing the total sum of the churches in Galatia. Meaning from the onset, Paul is using familial language, saying we are called into a family as believers in Jesus. Because we have been adopted into the family of God, we serve one another like we would serve our own parents, our own grandparents, our own children, our own siblings. Paul says if anyone is caught in a transgression... This really isn't an if, but rather, when you have a member of your faith family walking in sin, you who are spiritual should gently correct them. So point number one is this. We need gentle restoration. You need the church. You need your family to care for you spiritually. The church is referred to as a household. So one of my biggest fears as a dad is that something bad would happen to my kids. We moved into our current house about four years ago, and my two youngest kids were obsessed with opening the front door. So I got one of those like plastic doorknob cuff, doorknob deterrent turner things, so they couldn't turn it. But the damage had already been done to my psyche. 
So I would go to bed and I would fall asleep. And for several months, I was having this reoccurring dream where those two were opening the door and walking out. And so I would like wake up at three in the morning, pitch black, running towards the front door like, no. And then I'd be in my room and they would be asleep. That was awful. And it's over now, thankfully. But the point is, like, I want to protect my kids from imminent danger, right? This is the kind of thrust we see in Paul's words. Sin is dangerous, and it leads you to nowhere good. And even though we minimize it culturally, sin destroys everything that it touches. Last week we talked about sin being a battle and how we need to make war on it in our lives in order to crucify the desires of our flesh. And today Paul is telling us to continue this fight. But he is also telling us that we are not in this battle alone. Think about it in terms of history. In history, when you study wars, it is always nations versus nations, armies versus armies. It is never one nation sends out their army and the other nation sends out one dude. Like, good luck, buddy. No. It's nations versus nations. And the same is true in our fight against sin. Christ doesn't save us and then tell us to fight our battles alone. He gives us himself through the Holy Spirit, and he has given us the church. We need both in our fight against sin. We need the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, and we need each other in order to fight sin because sometimes we're not even aware of it in our own lives. We can be so blinded by our pride that we can't even see it. We all need extra eyes on our lives, eyes that we trust to speak into our lives as a means of pointing us back to truth. So we need to be restored. But that leads to the question, what are we being restored to? Restored to what? As we said in the past few weeks, sin breaks fellowship, it creates conflict, it breaks fellowship and creates conflict with God. It breaks fellowship and, co- and creates conflict with the church. So when we are caught in sin, as this verse alludes to, we need to be restored to right relationship with God and others. This occurs through forgiveness and repentance. So there's the need. We need to be restored. Which then leads us to the method, the how to restore someone. The method is gentleness. Remember this is a fruit of the Spirit from last week. Jesus is gentle, so we are gentle. Jesus is kind, so we need to be kind in order to bring about repentance. And I'll be real honest, sometimes I struggle so much with this because I look at the sin in other people's lives and think, why are you so dumb? Like, you know better. And then I'm like, oh, I'm super arrogant to even have that thought. That's arrogance and that's pride in my own life. We're all messed up. Jesus instructs us to make sure that before we try to remove the speck from our brother's eye, we need to get the log out of our own eye. So we do this gently. We are to restore the person that is wandering away. 
The Greek word for restore here in this text paints this picture of a doctor, a physician, resetting a broken bone. That sounds painful, but it is meant for our good. The goal of church discipline is meant to be redemptive. It's meant to be corrective. It's meant to be encouraging. And yet, so many times, when you are confronted with sin, our pride leads us to run. Our pride leads us to hide. Our pride leads us to be defensive. Our pride leads us to get angry. And then we try to justify ourselves and explain it away. When we're willing, though, to walk alongside of people in their struggles with sin, we do communicate care. When we aren't willing to walk alongside of people, when we aren't willing to confront sin in the lives of other people, we communicate the exact opposite. We communicate a lack of care. This communicates selfishness. We care more about our own comforts than the souls of our brothers and sisters. So we need to be restored, and we need to be restored gently, and we need to restore people gently. But then that leads us to who is the one that should restore us? Who should be doing the restoring? The text says those who are spiritual. So if you're not walking in the Spirit... If you are not abiding in Jesus through the word and prayer, if your life is not characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, it is really difficult then for you to speak on spiritual things with any authority or with any validity. So again, if you're going to lovingly restore a wayward sibling in Christ, do so as one that is walking with Christ. Paul gives us a warning Keep watch on our lives and on our teaching. We do this by confidently knowing the words of Jesus found in the Scriptures. So the spiritual person then is one who walks with Jesus, who looks and sounds like Jesus, who has trusted Christ for salvation and is marked by love and generosity and faithfulness of Christ. We need gentle restoration from spiritual people in our lives, namely those in the church and those in our faith family. Church, those who are caught in sin need our help. But also those people who are not in sin also need our help. Let's look at verse 2. It says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Point number two is we need to humbly bear one another's burdens. Burdens weigh us down. Burdens can crush us. Burdens can be defined as suffering in our lives. A burden is a heavy load. And we all experience seasons that are more burdensome than others. When our brothers and sisters are carrying burdens, we're called to faithfully do something. And do something quickly. That doesn't mean we're called to fix them. That doesn't mean we're even called to fix the situation. But we are called to care. We're called to care for them. We're called to be with them in it. 
So don't let your people get crushed by life. This is the selfless serving that we're called to. Paul commands us to bear one another's burdens. This is not a suggestion. It's a command. You don't get to stand idly by when your people are in need. So how do we bear a burden? Here's some ways. Show up. Be present. Be a good listener. Give support. Give encouragement from the scriptures. Pray together. Provide a meal. Watch their kids for a few hours. Care. And also know when you need to bring other people in. By this command, Paul is showing us that none of us are self-sufficient. We are not called to this life alone, but we get to lovingly share life together. Not just the good Instagram-worthy parts, but the real-life stuff. When we bear one another's burdens, we are demonstrating the love of Christ to us, and we're demonstrating that to one another. Look, we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all miss the mark of God's standard of perfection. And because of that, the wrath of God is upon us. Because God is holy and we are not. We needed a rescuer. We needed someone to lift the burden off of us. And Jesus did that. Jesus bore our ultimate burden of sin and death. And he took it all upon himself. He went to the cross for our sin, removing our heavy burden of our guilt that we couldn't remove from ourselves. Jesus purchased our pardon by himself becoming sin in our place. Therefore, Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. When you think you're good, when we think we're good, when we think we're something, we're deceived by our pride. Pride hinders our love for one another. If this type of service is beneath you, or you are so prideful that you have become so inwardly focused and can't see the hurts of your brothers and your sisters around you, it's possible you don't really know the great love of God to you. If you are inconvenienced by the real burdens of the people in your life, you do not understand how sinful you are, and you do not understand how needy you are. Verse 4 then tells us to not measure ourselves against one another. Don't compare our service or the severity of our loads against that of each other. We are to see ourselves in light of Jesus, and at the foot of the cross, we are all equal. We're all poor, we're all needy sinners with nothing good in us apart from Jesus. We're in need of grace, and we're in need of mercy. So let me do a quick aside real quick, because without some further explanation, verse 4 can be a little confusing. Paul says, boast in yourself, like your boast, boasting will be in yourself, in your own work. But that seems like the opposite of what he said and what Jesus has said. And so which is it? God has given us each skills and gifts. Therefore, when Paul tells us to test our own work, 
We're asked to assess our own opportunities and our own responses to, to situations. Keller says we're to measure ourselves, in essence, against, against ourselves. Like we don't compare ourselves to others. We look at our particular calling and ways we can step in and ways we can respond obediently. We're not concerning ourselves with whether or not somebody else is doing something. If we only worry about our own responses in light of the burden bearing, we become less concerned with being the judge of other people and see that if we're being obedient to Christ in this way, when we're testing our own work and able to see our own growth in Christ, we don't compare ourselves to someone who has done less and feel good and prideful about ourselves. And we don't compare ourselves to someone who has done more and feel despair and shame. God has given us each our own load to carry and to serve him with. So our task then is to carry that load in a way that pleases God. Keller then says that if we will see life this way, then we will be slow to judge others. We will be more generous. For example, when someone is grumpy and irritable, our responses will be more kind because we don't know the pressure that they're experiencing in that moment. Yes, we need to call out sin. Like if you're grumpy, don't be. Christ has saved you. Joy. Um, call out sin. But I am not the righteousness police. We get to verse 5 then, and it says, Each will have to bear his own load. So then I'm like, is this a contradiction to everything else Paul has said up to this point? Bear one another's, own, bear one another's burdens and then carry your own load? Like, it can't be both, Paul. Which is it? These are not contradictory statements, though. Burdens are crushing weights. Loads are like your book bag, your backpack. Some things are so heavy that we can't bear them alone. Also, everything in your life that feels hard is not a crisis. And in all circumstances, we have the church to encourage us. But we aren't supposed to wallow in self-pity and guilt and shame but we're to endure and persevere because we know the promises of Jesus to us. So here's some examples as to what loads are and what burdens are. I met with a college student who was failing all of his classes because he spent all of his time playing video games and staying up super late and couldn't wake up to get to class. He wanted someone to call him and to wake him up to make sure he got to class. That's a load. His foolishness has led to some consequences, but that's not a crisis. And another example, there are some things I know I should do, but if I choose laziness instead, I mean, last week was March Madness, so if I choose to watch March Madness instead of doing other things, and there are some consequences for that, that shouldn't necessitate a crisis management squad on my behalf. That's a load that I need to bear on my own. Hypothetically speaking, what if a husband abandons his wife and kids? What if a husband leaves his wife and kids and leaves the wife to provide? That's a burden. 
And that's a burden the church must help shoulder. The spirit-filled believers, i.e. all believers, need to step into these crisis situations and serve. We need to humbly bear one another's burdens. Verse 6, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Point number three, we must be generous. The goal of our Sunday mornings is not that you would come in here and experience like a, a show. The goal of our Sunday mornings is that you would encounter Christ through the word of God. We sing the word. We preach the word. Redeemer Church exists for the glory of God and for your growth in Christ. Not to entertain you. Not to tickle your ears. Uh, not to build an awesome kids ministry f- for your kids so you can outsource discipleship to someone else. No, that's not our goal. Our goal is that you would grow in Christ for Christ's glory. So we ask you to give to this church. Not so that we can have a church in the fundome. And that's part of it, but that's not our primary motivation. We ask you to give to this ministry so that the word of God can continue in Odessa. You give not to support a system, but to spread the gospel. The Christian is called to generosity in all good things. So we ask you to give of your time, your talents, and your resources to this place in order to continue the good work of gospel ministry here. And if I could get a little ranty here, I'm not mad at anybody. Um, But one thing I've noticed in my 30s is that ministry is a place for a lot of lazy people to hide out in. And I'm not their judge, but like I get upset with guys in my position that spend all day in their office, never engaging lost people, never discipling their church people, scroll on Facebook all day long, and then they preach a watered-down gospel message on Sundays with no passion, no conviction. And again, I'm not their judge, but I don't want that to be true of us. So I will say that if you see laziness in me, by all means, restore me in a spirit of gentleness, please. But I make a living by the gospel, and therefore I am accountable to this gospel ministry and desire to be a good steward of the financial resources of this church. So that is a plea to be generous, but not so I can get paid, so that people will hear the gospel and people will receive salvation and people will grow in Christ. This is a plea to generosity in order that you have a place to exercise your calling and gifts as believers in Jesus. Tony Marita says, Paul's conviction in writing this verse is not money, but the gospel. He says, care for those who teach the word of God to you, not out of obligation or tradition, but because you love the word of God and want to see it spread through the ends of the earth. In this, there's a missional mandate, and part of that mandate is a call to personal holiness. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Paul shifts gears here. 
He's talking about reaping what one sows. This isn't in relation to money now like it was in verse 6. He's talking again about the differences between a life marked by the Spirit of God and a life marked by the flesh. So point number four is holiness matters. John MacArthur says the Christian has only two fields that they can sow in. The one he can sow to the flesh and the one to sow to the Spirit. And as we said last week, there is no neutral ground here. So I'd have told you years ago that I grew up in a strict household. Uh, my mom especially kept a really close eye on what my brother and I watched and what we listened to. And uh, growing up, I kind of resented her for it. Uh, now as a parent, I completely get it. Um, she used to tell me all the time, trash in, trash out. Um, <laughs> You reap what you sow. What you put in your mind, what you put in your heart, what you fill your life up with, ultimately spews out of you. And some of you struggle with sin so much and wonder why nothing ever changes. Perhaps consider what you're filling your life up with. Where does your time go? Where do your affections go? Some of you never sow to the Spirit of God. Some of you never give attention to the things of Jesus. Some of you never spend any time in the Word or any time in prayer. Some of you show up here once a month or less and wonder why you're not gaining any ground in your fight against sin. Well, let me tell you why. It's because your weaponry is terrible. You cannot fight a battle that requires a machete with a straw. Okay, machete, excuse me. And yet so many of you do just that. And you wonder why you're always anxious. And you wonder why you always struggle in the ways that you do. Listen, it's not the load that breaks you down. It's the way you carry it. If you want to be free from sin, pursue holiness. You pursue holiness by first confessing your sins before God, and then you get some accountability. How do you get accountability? By humbly confessing your sin and your struggles before others. Let me tell you a secret you're not perfect. You know how I know? Because none of us are perfect. So you can pretend all you want. You can be prideful and act like nothing is going on, but we know that's not true. And more importantly than me knowing that this allure you put up is a sham, God sees you. But even more importantly than that, because God sees you, there is love, and there is grace, and there is mercy available to you to not be okay. But you don't have to stay there. You want to take steps in your faith? Here's a practical one. Share a struggle with someone. Like, start there. 
Maybe you start with prayer and then you go share that struggle with someone and ask for accountability for the things you need accountability for. For some of you, you need your search history checked often. For some of you, you need to share how your devotional life is going or not going. For some of you, you need to share how your marriages are going. Some of you need to be asked if you are lovingly pursuing your spouse or not. Some of you need to share if you are being pure in your singleness or your dating. And just be honest. If you claim to be a Christian, Christ has said, be holy because he is holy. And confessing, of and confessing of and repenting of sin and sharing struggles can lead to personal holiness, which leads to more intimacy with God, which leads to more glorification and praise of God. And honestly, that is the whole goal of our faith. It's that God would be glorified in us. Paul tells us last week, walk in the Spirit, meaning follow Jesus. Do as Jesus does. And not to belabor a point, but you cannot do this on your own. Be holy. Pursue holiness in community. There is grace there because holiness matters. And finally, we get to point five. Point five is persevere in doing good. Verse nine, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have an opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Listen, gospel ministry is hard, and we're all called to it. Paul says, don't grow weary. Don't give up. He says, if we reap to the Spirit, I'm sorry, if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap a faithful harvest to Jesus. And that reward is both now and eternal. So keep serving faithfully in the way that Christ has served us. This is more than just loving your neighbor, which is good and praiseworthy and important. But more practically, we are to serve each other inside this particular body because this is where Christ has called you. We are meant to pay attention to the needs of those within the household of faith, the church. So to summarize, we are to gently restore one another. We are to care for one another by bearing one another's burdens while being generous and pursuing holiness in order that we persevere in our serving to Christ and to others. And we do this because Jesus has done these things for us. Jesus has perfectly embodied these things. Jesus restored us first. Jesus restored us from our brokenness through the cross and the resurrection, and he did so in tender mercy and in tender gentleness. He bore our greatest burden upon himself. He paid our penalty that was ours to pay by living the life we could never live and would never live. He paid the price of our sins against the penalty of our sins, by being our perfect, perfect sacrifice. He bore our burden of death. He died the death that we were supposed to die, but now we will never have to. Jesus generously gave of himself. Jesus took on poverty so we could become rich in the heavenly realms, as we will inherit a kingdom that will not be shaken. 
There is now no condemnation for those in Christ. We are now set free to pursue holiness as we follow Christ in holiness by receiving his forgiveness. We exhibit this forgiveness by serving and loving and enduring with one another as Christ has graciously, lovingly endured with us. You'll notice Paul doesn't talk about a spirit-filled life in terms of charismatic spiritual gifts. Those have their place. He doesn't talk about the spirit-filled life in terms of experiencing signs and wonders, which again, have their place. He doesn't even talk about the spirit-filled life in terms of having a more consistent quiet time, which again, is important. But the spirit-filled life is one that is dependent upon Jesus. And all of these things will be added unto you. When you are with Christ, your desires for Christ increase. You don't just wake up one morning and all of your problems are gone and your desires for pursuing Christ are perfectly where they need to be. You wake up and you preach the gospel to yourself and you go to war. So how are you doing? Are you spending any time with the Lord? Do you desire to be in church? Are you exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit found in the previous passage? Maybe a better way to ask that is, does your life look like Jesus' life? If not, what changes do you need to make right just now? The goal is not that you would change your behavior but that you'd honor Christ. The goal is not morality, but faithfulness. So what do you need to repent of? And who needs to know? Whose burdens do you need to bear? Have you been avoiding stepping into some practical needs of people in your life? Do you have practical needs that you need to share with people? I just would tell you all to get to work. If you want to grow in Christ, take a step towards community. I promise it's hard, but I also promise that it's worth it. Jesus has called us to this type of life, and we're called to be obedient to Jesus. Repent of your pride. Repent of your unbelief, receive Christ's forgiveness, and pursue Christ and others the way that Christ has pursued you. Let's pray.